You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Mike. I want to talk about another guy named Mike. His name was Michael, and I thought he was the coolest guy on the floor. My very first job out of college, I worked for Compaq Computer Corporation in Houston, Texas, for those of you that are old enough to remember Compaq Computer Corporation. In fact, 21,000 employees worldwide. I was the youngest full-time employee worldwide for Compaq Computer Corporation in Houston, Texas, which means uh, I knew the grand sum total of nothing, and yet they hired me anyway. And I was assigned a mentor, this guy named Michael, Uh, which I thought was just the greatest, coolest thing. He was the top producer in our department, and I got to sort of ride shotgun with him, which I thought was great because Michael had a big white Ford pickup and a ski boat. So things were looking up for me. Now, you might not know this, but you can probably infer this. I can have a tendency to be a little bit uh, high-strung, freaked out, high-stressed. And so things would happen in my job with with customers and situations and this and the other. And I can remember running over to Michael's office saying, Mike, I got this thing. This is going on. This is terrible. This is awful. This is very bad. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And he would stop me. And he would say, a crisis on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine. I'd say, okay, okay. I didn't know what that meant. But I would just kind of back up out of his office and go and try to figure it out on my own. And then, you know, a week or three would go by and something else would happen. There'd be some calamitous disaster that I had caused. And I'd run into Mike's office and say, okay, this thing is happening. I got people who are mad in Singapore. I got this going on over here in Aberdeen, Scotland. What do I do? And he'd say, a crisis for you does not mean an emergency for me. I'd say, okay, Okay, I don't know what that means, but okay. And so I would leave. And I just figured it was like Zen guru, like older guy code for leave me alone. And so I did. But I finally began to understand what he was saying is, that's your problem, I'm busy, you go figure it out. And I thought Mike was a great guy. Mike was successful. And so it's the kind of thing that I found that I began to walk around and say as well. Until the Lord really began to, sometimes against my will, do a work in my life, he got a hold of my heart and began to change some things. As I began to seek the Lord in his word, and he began to sort of help me to rethink my thinking. And in particular, specifically, in the book of Genesis chapter 4, we have this really tragic story where Cain, who worked the fields, kills his brother, who was a shepherd. And God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? And Cain answers with a question. Assuming a negative response, am I my brother's keeper? He assumes that God will say no. But the answer to the question from God is yes. So this is our big idea for the day. I am my brother's keeper. And in fact, from Genesis 4 to the very end of the book, we will see that God repeatedly answers the question, am I my brother's keeper? Yes. I am my brother's keeper. Or perhaps let me help out by putting the emphasis on the correct syllable and say, I am my brother's keeper. Or I am my brother's keeper. 
Here we are now finally in the book of Galatians. We have been studying the book of Galatians since January. This is our penultimate sermon. Uh, next week will be our 19th message, Lord willing, on the book of Galatians. We have gone through five chapters, largely doctrine, exhortation. But now the book of Galatians follows the biblical pattern. It is about God, what he has done, who he is, therefore who I am, and now how that translates out relationally and socially. It's a great model. It's a great lens through which to read your Bible. Who is God? What has he done? What does that mean to me? How does that work itself out to others? Last week we were in chapter 5 and we learned of the fruit of the Spirit. And all nine facets of the fruit have to deal with the blessing and the building up of other people. So here we are finally now in Galatians chapter 6. The overarching theme of the book of Galatians has been freedom in Christ because of the gospel. Don't be fooled by any other gospel. Paul says, the gospel that I, that I preach, it's not for me, it's not mine. No other man made this up. This is God's gospel. What is the gospel? It is the great story, the awesome announcement, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself. Ah, now finally in chapter 6 and to one another. Now the passage that Mike read this morning, we'll unpack here momentarily, really sort of discusses and describes three different groups of people that are in need of special grace and blessing. They are sinning Christians, burdened Christians, and preachers. You do the math. We are the ones that are apparently are in need of dire attention, grace, and blessing. Don't be fooled by any other gospel, and it is the gospel that trumpets, heralds, proclaims, and declares the good news. And because of this good news, we can have peace together. So I'm going to break this up a little bit. Galatians chapter 6, and beginning in verse 1. Paul says this, Brothers, Adelphoi, and I find this very instructive, very comforting, very reassuring, very pastoral from Paul. The first word of chapter 6 is brothers. And effectively, the final word of chapter 6 is brothers. Oh, I know there's an amen there, but that's sort of for the entire book of yes, yes, brothers. He begins chapter 6, brothers is how he ends chapter 6. This now finally works itself out into our social engagements with one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... Now, there's some technical language that Paul is going to be using here. If anyone is caught, the, the word is prolambano. Now, we might read that if anyone is caught in a transgression, that might mean that, oh, we, we opened the door and we caught them. We busted them. They were doing something secret and naughty and wicked and, and foul, and they got caught. Whoopsie, red-handed. It's not that word. The word prolambano has the idea of you were run down from behind and overwhelmed. You were caught, which is really startling language. Paul's reminding us that there is this aggression of sin, that it is in hot pursuit. And whether we know it, feel it, recognize it, or admit it, it is on our heels. And it is energized and amplified by an enemy who knows our struggles, knows our weaknesses, knows our tendencies. And so it's not so much if a brother or sister is caught, but when. And if they're caught in a transgression, it's not this willful act 
of, of defiance and rebellion and animosity of God. It is, the word is to, to, to step aside. It's as Bonhoeffer said, when we sin, it's not that we hate God, it's that we have chosen to forget him. We've taken our eyes off and we have stepped to the side, which means the word is very, very intentional when we are caught in that sin, which means we might not even be aware of it ourselves. In other words, the most profound, devastating sin in your life might be something that you don't even know of yourself. We have a tendency to think that sin is the stuff that I do or that I do not do. But perhaps there is a sin that has overtaken you from behind in secret and everyone else around you knows it except for you. Perhaps it's false humility. Perhaps it's arrogance and vanity. Perhaps it's greed. Perhaps it's just vain conceit, thinking only and ever of oneself. If a brother, if a brother, someone with whom we share a fraternal bond, because God is our Father, the Lord Jesus is our big brother, Hebrews chapter 2 says, and all of us, therefore, are brothers and sisters. If one of us gets run down from behind, whether they even know it or not, this is what we're supposed to do. You who are spiritual. Now, many people for many centuries have taken this to mean, well, this is the, uh, the Green Berets, the Special Forces, the Black Ops, the really super spiritual elite and mature. No. It absolutely cannot mean that. Those who are spiritual should be the ones that restore the one who has been caught. Those who are spiritual are whom? See also Galatians chapter 5. Those who are indwelled by God's Spirit those who are no longer serving the desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the flesh? The things that serve for my own advancement and glory. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And every believer, Romans 8, 32, every single believer is indwelled by the Spirit of God. Therefore, I am my brother's keeper because I am a believer. Therefore, I am indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, I am spiritual. Therefore, it is my job to restore a brother or a sister who has been run down from behind in a transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him. I wish I could take hours on this. This word, restore, is so rich and thick. Paul knew precisely what he was talking about. Katartizete. Those of you who are spiritual should katartizete. It's an orthopedic word. It has the idea of resetting a dislocated bone. Now, the gospel writer Mark also uses it when James and John and Peter are restoring their nets. They're taking that which has been torn or broken, and they're mending it for use again. But Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. Five times he was beaten by the Jews, 39 lashes. He was stoned, beaten with rods, hit with sticks, shipwrecked. He knew what it was to have physical anguish. And he uses this term of a dislocated bone, and I find it interesting. Paul does not say, when someone is run down from behind with a sin, perform surgery and take out the foreign object. Because look, in, in his femur, there's a steak knife. No, it's not that. It's a dislocated bone, something that does belong there, but is out of whack. Something that does belong but is dislocated. Now, praise God, I have never actually broken a bone or had a serious bone dislocation. But those of you that had and those of you in the medical profession will know that that thing that does belong there, whether it's a pelvis or a knee or a pinky finger, it belongs there. But if it's dislocated, if it's out of whack, the entire bodily system suffers and hurts. 
So it requires strength and conviction and commitment, but also gentleness to restore that bone. This is the, the word that Paul is using here. It might sting, but you have to have commitment and dedication to do what needs to be done to restore that bone, but do so, he says, in a spirit of gentleness. Already having come out of Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit is gentleness. It is the exact same word. We do not come at someone and we say, you know what? I've observed a whole lot of arrogance and anger in your life, and we beat them with God's word, with aggression and legalism and moralism and behavior modification. No, because if you have a dislocated knee, the last thing you want is to someone to come at you with a hammer. And you'll only get one chance. We come at them with a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. There is a residue. Sin stains and it splatters. And so there's a healthy balance. There's a tension. We want to be diligent and vigilant in our restoration, and our relocation of a dislocated spirit bone. But we always want to be careful that that error does not translate to us. And so we have to be walking in the spirit, aware of his movement and working in our lives. And preferably, we do so in a plurality of other spirit-led, spirit-fed believers. This is not talking about spiritual discipline where we haul somebody before the elders. No, 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 no. All of us indwelled by the spirit. I am my brother's keeper. Well, Paul continues on, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is an imperative. Do this. Why does Paul have to say do this? <laughs> because they're not. If I tell my kids to not run with scissors, why did I tell them that? Because they were sound asleep? No, because they were running with scissors. What has begun to happen is these false teachers have come in and have started propagating this false teaching that says, you have to do all of this stuff. And as soon as you and I begin to think about doing all of this stuff in our own strength, man, it takes our eyes off of one another. And we stop bearing one another's burdens. We think only of ourselves. Paul says, bear one another's burdens. The word here is bare for burden. And it has this idea of a negative product. Because of millennia of human sin and dysfunction and fallenness, all of us have pockmarks and scars and, and scabs from the fallenness of this world. We have to know that about each other. Nobody is burden-free. We come into this world right out of the wrapper with burdens, and we are to bear those burdens with one another. And so fulfill, and Paul does a little turn of phrase here, the law of Christ. I think Paul might have in mind here the great commandment of Matthew 22, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus was all about. This was his rule, love of God, love of others. That's the mark, that's the scorecard of a, of a disciple. Am I growing in love of God? If so, I will be increasing in my love of others. They are not mutually exclusive. You can't have one without the other. Jesus was characterized as being a man of sorrows. He was burdened. Why? Because he knew, he understood, he saw, he felt the separation of man from God because of sin. And his greatest desire was to glorify the Father by bringing man back together with God. John 17, he prays, Father, would you reveal yourself? Not only these, but all of those who will come after. That includes us. So what does Jesus do? He bears our burden. 
He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He volitionally, willingly took on our burden. And not just the attractive people, not just the smart people, not just the affluent people, not just the people that voted like he did. Incidentally, he didn't vote. He willingly bore the burden of people even like me. Paul says, that's what we are called and equipped to do. And so we will fulfill, complete, bring to maturity, bring to fulfillment the law, the embodiment of Christ himself. If my brother has 100 pounds he's carrying, but he shares it with me, guess what? Now he only has 50 pounds to carry. But it also means that I have 50 pounds to carry. It does cost me something. We cannot say, I will bear your burden, but only to the extent that I don't feel it or it doesn't hurt or cost me anything, that I'm really not bearing that burden at all. Bearing another's burden is a willful, intentional entering into sacrifice that will cost me some level of convenience or perhaps even cost or physical pleasure, whatever that might be. Do this, Paul says. This is what it looks like when the gospel takes root. This is the manifestation, is that we begin to bear one another's burdens. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, this is a consistent idea, a consistent notion that Paul will say also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul will say this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words as in Galatians 6.3, because you think you're something when you're actually nothing. It's really sort of sobering how the Bible sometimes characterizes us. Jesus, in talking to his disciples, says, if you, who are evil, would give your children a loaf of bread when they ask, how much more so would your father? This is Jesus talking to the, to the disciples. You who are evil, ooh, that doesn't feel very good. But Jesus understood our default human nature. So too does Paul. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. The word is irithion, out of, out of uh, grasping and hyperfighting because of conceit. A better translation, empty glory, kenodoxia. Because you don't feel like you have enough recognition, acclaim, power, or praise, you will try to grasp it from somebody else. Paul says don't do that. Same thing as in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, is this meaning that Paul's talking to these people in Galatia who are walking around just thinking that they're the absolute greatest thing ever, that they are sort of involved in self-worship, perhaps, Probably not. It probably looks more like they are thinking there's something when they're really nothing. It manifests itself that we get so busy and involved with our own lives that we have absolutely no margin to bear any burdens of the people around us. The more things change, the more things stay the same. What does it look like in our day and age for people to think there's something when they're really nothing? Let me get in your kitchen for just a minute. I can just about promise that if I was to ask a hundred different people in this community, hey, how are you doing? The answer 99 times out of 100 would be busy. I'm busy. Why? Because I'm such a big deal. 
because that has become the new normal, the new justification of self. I have to be doing stuff to, to, to demonstrate and to communicate that I have meaning, value, significance, and worth. I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, I'm doing so much stuff that I have zero margin to actually be aware of or carry anybody else's burden whatsoever. Paul says that is error. He says that we, if we are doing that, we deceive ourselves. And he uses this wonderful technical word that says you have constructed for yourself a false, fanciful reality. It's a dreamland. If your existence is characterized by I'm busy with no margin, that is not of the spirit, that is of the flesh. We have a way and a tendency to think only of ourselves, and the Bible describes that as arrogance. Oh, it's not haughtiness and And conceit, it's arrogance because we think only of ourselves. Thomas Schreiner puts it this way. Arrogance cuts off, cuts people off from the lives of others. So what were the churches of Galatia trying to do to remedy this? They were going back to the law. Well, we have to have dietary restrictions, dress restrictions, circumcision, all of these things. But the law is powerless to change a human heart toward another. The best the law can do is flick my mind and remind me of what a dirtbag I am in relation to everybody else. But it is powerless to change a human heart. See, the spirit goes where the law cannot. The spirit goes directly to my heart, soul, and mind and begins to change my thinking. The best the law can do is condemn. I was talking with Ross Strader this week, our senior pastor, and he said, you know, the more I think about this, he said, the very best the law can do is put rocks in our pocket to throw them at somebody else. I said, wow, that, that's pretty good. Where'd you, where'd you get that? He said, no, 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 I, I just came up with that right there. I said, no, 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 really, where'd you get that? He said, no, I just said that just right then. I said, well, I'm totally going to rip you off and not give you credit. So there you go. <laughs> I think he's right. That's the very best that the law can do is line our pockets with rocks to throw them at somebody else. Well, Paul's going to continue and tell us how that's not to be who we are. Verse 4. But let each other test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. This is one of the most tricky verses in the New Testament because it seems like Paul is contradicting what he's already said for five plus chapters. Look to yourself, test your own work. But he's not contradicting himself. I don't think he's being sarcastic either. This entire letter is about having freedom in Christ, Christian liberty, because of what the Spirit is doing in us. And so Paul says it is a good thing, it is a healthy thing, it is a necessary thing to step back and say, whoa, God, what are you doing in me, with me, and through me? And when we stop and we look at our day through those eyes, man, we worship, we pause, Stop and test and see what God is doing with, in, and through us. Again, it's a similar notion in Paul. He says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, his poema, his artful craftsmanship. That's who we are. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. We were created to do good works. We are his good work, and we have been created to do good work. We are the artful craftsmanship of God himself. But it is always and consistently the spirit that is doing the work. And not only that, he prepared the good work that we are to do. He prepared it in advance. 
And then Philippians 2, 12, and 13 says that he gives us a new will, a new want to, to want to do the things that he has put before us to do. And then the Spirit does the work. And then Paul says, we get rewarded. (laughs) Check, please. What a great deal. My want to is busted, so he gives me a new one. He prepares for eternity past the good things that I'm to walk around in and do. And it's actually the Spirit that does the work. And then I get rewarded for it. It's a scandal of grace. And then the book of Revelation says we take those rewards, that crown, and we throw them down at his feet in recognition that God has done it. Now, the other key to this text is that Paul says, literally, we will have boasting. Not that we walk around in a boast today. The literal translation would be, we will have boasting. This has to do with future judgment. We will not stand before Jesus as a group project. We will stand before Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, at the judgment seat of Christ as individuals, and the evaluation criteria will be, how did you love my brothers? How did you bear the burdens of my sisters? And we will have boasting. We will say in that day, oh, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, not in my flesh, not in my strength, not in my own will even, but what you were doing within and through me was this, and it will be ours to boast because of what God has done into and through us. Do you see? We are to look forward to the next time we see Jesus, not dread his return. It also The end of verse 4 there prevents us from the very fleshly desire of taking credit for someone else's work. I can't tell you how bad, just candidly, transparently in the flesh, I wanted to take credit for that thing that Ross said. It's good, and I'm not that clever. But I was deeply, immediately convicted that no, no, no. Boasting in the cross of Christ frees me from the fleshly desire to take credit for the work of my neighbor. I don't need to because the work of my Savior is sufficient. Well, he continues verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, this seems like it might be in a little bit of contradiction with verse 2. It's not. We are to bear one another's burdens in verse 2. That's bare. Here we are to, bear, we are to carry our own fortion. It's, uh, it's like our load, our luggage for the journey. We do have a responsibility. God has given us all that we need, and this life is constituted and construed by pain sometimes and and baggage and, and, and hardship. And we have been given what we have been given, and it is our responsibility to carry those things. And it can be heavy. God, in his sovereignty, gives us his spirit and applies the finished work of the Son, and so we have responsibility for how we are aware of and walking in the Spirit that he gives us. And so, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, let us turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse 6, Paul's going to sort of now break into a little bit of a, just sort of a proverbial outburst, little bitty sections, almost like he's writing Proverbs. Verse 6, for the, uh, sorry, verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, this is always fun and not the least bit awkward for the preacher to say, hey, those of you who are taught the word should share all your stuff. Well, <sighs> it's a bit strange because I happen to be a preacher of the word to God's people. But what's happening in the greater context is the Judaizers have come in, these false teachers, who begin to tell the people of Galatia that Paul's not really one of them. 
And so they should begin to direct their support financially to them instead of to Paul. But Paul's saying, wait a minute, I portrayed, I placarded Jesus before you. Do not fail in financially supporting the work of the ministry in the church. Now, this is not just about preachers who stand on a platform. This is about anybody who teaches and leads in God's word. Romans 15 essentially says, spiritual leadership ought to produce material blessing. Yesterday, we had a sort of a celebration year-end party for all of our children's workers, all of the sweet people, men and women, who are loving, leading, guiding, and guarding our children. And it was this wonderful scene of this cacophonous outburst of children laughing and, and blowing out diapers and blood and tears and guts, and it was awesome. And we wanted to say thank you with juice boxes and burgers to those people who are leading and teaching the word to those children. That is appropriate. It is appropriate to, to encourage anybody who is teaching, leading God's word in our student ministry, our life groups. It is important. It is necessary to affirm and to encourage them. Well, Paul's going to continue verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Again, this passage has caused a lot of consternation and confusion. It needn't. It's Pauline proverbial messaging here. He's not creating this system of karma where what goes around comes around. Not at all. The gospel says that what goes around does not come around because of the cross of Christ. It stops that cycle. But what Paul is saying is that what we do in this life matters. It absolutely has impact and it has reverberation. And when we reap to the flesh, that means we take our material means and we merely use it for our own advanced pleasure and glory, completely unaware of what the Spirit is wanting to do and completely unaware of people around us. But if we reap to the Spirit, it's the same idea. It's synonymous with Galatians chapter 5. That means we are walking by the Spirit, aware of the Spirit, cognizant of the Spirit's movement among us. When we do that, it has eternal dividend. As opposed to using our material means for our own purpose, it goes to corruption. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It is chaff. It has no lasting value whatsoever. Finally, in verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good. Why would Paul say that? Because they had grown weary of doing good. Because doing good had become the scorecard. You have to do good, you have to do good to get God's favor. And it became to them a shackle and a chain, and it wore them out. Paul says, don't be weary of doing good. We do good because we want to, not because we have to. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us not grow weary. The entire book of James thematically can be summarized thus. Faith works. We do not work to obtain or achieve or earn God's favor. We have it, and therefore the natural, supernatural outworking is to do good. Do good to whom? To God, he has need of nothing. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. To his other children, to our brothers and our sisters. We want to serve. We want to love. We want to bear because of who God is, what he has done, and therefore who we are. We are, in fact, our brother's keeper. 
the world outside will know that we are Christians, will know we are disciples, will know that we are believers because of how we display God's love. And yes, there is a prioritization. Those of the household of faith get our special attention. Why? Because we are with them more often. We are sharing a spiritual, eternal, realistic bond. But if the outside world, all they ever see is us devouring one another, man, I think I can get that at work. I can get that at home. Why would I want to come here? I'd rather just sleep in and avoid the rain. But when the outside world begins to see these people bearing one another's burdens, that becomes incredibly salty. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10 says, I am my brother's keeper. Now let me just sort of work this out very briefly with three implications. Three things that I hope God, by his spirit, will use his word to help us rethink our thinking. The first implication is this. Family matters. Family matters. Let me, let me, let me say it from a slightly different angle. The New Testament knows no unchurched Christian. There is no such thing. The New Testament knows no unchurched Christian. The notion of a believer, a part of the family of faith, is completely foreign to God's authoritative word. You will never find in any place in the New Testament where anyone is encouraged to join and attend regularly bedside Bible church. It doesn't exist. Or Deer Stand Baptist doesn't exist. Now I understand that some things occur and sometimes we miss church, but we ought to think of our brothers and sisters in such a way that we would no more miss a Sunday morning gathering with other brothers and sisters than we would miss being with our parents one more time if we had the opportunity at Thanksgiving. You'd never miss that if you could. We are to have that same thought about not just being in church for what I'll get out of it, but I get to be there because there are other brothers and sisters there. And I know, I know, believe me, I know, church people, they're the worst. I know, I'm chief among them. It reminds me of that great old sweet pastoral prayer, that poem that goes like this. Ah, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. Some of you know this. There is no kind of hurt like church hurt. But we do not get to choose our siblings. God in his sovereignty, purpose, and grace, he chooses. And in his sovereignty, the brothers and the sisters that are gathered around this morning are precisely the people that God intends for you to be aware of, to bear one another's burdens, and to lock arms in partnering in proclaiming the gospel. Now, my big brother, my biological big brother, is three years older than me, and he's always been a little bit rough on me. He always seemed to have a, a knack for taking out all of life's frustrations on me. And apparently there was a lot of frustrations in life for my big brother. He'd pick on me, he'd harass me, he would do all sorts of things. But one snowy morning at the bus stop, I was in the first grade, and Jamie Yates who was in the fourth grade. Jamie, I hope you're listening to this. Jamie Yates, who was in the fourth grade, who lived up the street, began to pick on me and bully me, and he pushed me down in the snow. And within about 90 seconds, my big brother, who was in the third grade, re-architected that dude's face with a Starsky and Hutch lunchbox. It was on, baby. Like, I can push that kid around. I can kick him in the head. But if you touch him, now i got to hit you with my lunch pail. Because that's what brothers do. 
Now, we haven't always seen eye to eye. To eye. We haven't always gotten along perfectly. But I can tell you, if that dude needed a kidney, I probably wouldn't even wait for anesthesia. Because that's what brothers do. How much more so? Not merely biologically bound because of the same gene pool. But Paul says, I am my brother's keeper. And that's a brother that for all eternity, I will never not know. There will never come a time in the rest of forever that I won't know you and you and you. And so how much more so should I ratchet up my awareness and simply be aware? And when I ask you how you're doing and you say busy, to not accept that. No, really, what else is going on? And Maybe it takes time. Maybe it takes effort. Maybe it takes getting a little bit of you under my nails. But perhaps I have prayerfully created margin in my life where I can now do that. And I'm not just running past you on the fly going, how's it going? Great, don't care. Because that's the way the rest of the world treats one another. That goes for people, brothers and sisters in Christ, on the other side of the planet, on the other side of our community, on the other side of this room. And for some of you, you need to hear that, for the other side of your kitchen table. You are your sister's keeper, husbands. You are your brother's keeper, wives. Second point, and this is, this is profound, and it could get inside of you and, and really begin to do a work, and I pray that it will. Number two, our view of ourselves determines our conduct toward others. Why weren't people bearing one another's burdens in the churches of Galatia? Because they thought more highly of themselves. Or they thought wrongly about themselves, either an overinflated opinion or an underinflated opinion, or there's just no margin to think of anybody else whatsoever. But if, when we're confronted with the need of another, if your knee-jerk reaction is, I can't, then that means you are defaulting to know, to know, without even being aware of what the Spirit might be wanting to do. And that means you are walking by the flesh and not in the Spirit. Which means you have an inaccurate opinion of self, and that is determining your conduct towards others. It's a great reminder to be aware that the gospel is never, ever, ever for me alone. The consistent pattern of scripture is who God is, what he has done, how does that impact change me, and now how does that work itself out into the community of faith? Anytime it's just me and God, we have gone on an adventure in missing the point. We are to be vigilant and diligent at creating margin in which we are aware of the needs of others. Third point, and this is kind of long, but I think it really, really uh, lands the plane. It goes like this. Sin forces us to live your life for me kinds of lives. But the gospel frees us to live my life for you kinds of lives. All the difference in the world. Because of sin, because of the fall of humankind... We come right out of the box, straight out of the wrapper, assuming that everybody exists for my gain. I look at you in the flesh by default, wondering what I can get from you or what you can do for me. It is your life for me. That's what sin produces in every single person of the 7.3 billion that are walking the face of the earth today. But the gospel comes along and it frees us from that and now allows us to walk around with a my life for you kind of mentality. I don't think I can make a big enough deal about this. 
particularly in the 21st century in an age of postmodernism and relativism, pretty much everybody my age or younger is absolutely consumed with this idealistic notion, this utopian concept of community. It is the great buzzword bingo wild card. You want to say a cool, important word in church these days? Say community. Oh, we just want community. We're going to build community. It's all about community, community, community. The problem is everybody is desperate for it. The first time we see a social encounter because of the fall, one person kills another person, Genesis chapter 4. We're all desperate for the idea of community, but we are completely incapable of accomplishing community in our own strength. The Bible tells me so. We want desperately the fruit to have community, but we want to do it in our own strength and will. And the Bible says that it is absolutely and utterly impossible. We cannot have the fruit if we are devoid of the root. That is the presence of Jesus by his spirit in our lives. Where we walk around going, oh, you know what you need most? It's not three square meals a day. What you need is the risen Lord Jesus. How can I be Lord Jesus to you? I'm not God. I'm not the Lord. But how would Jesus live his life through me if he were me, which is precisely what it means to be a Christian, indwelled by God's Holy Spirit? And the gospel frees us to that. And now for the first time, community, authentic, legitimate, sincere, real, life-altering, body-building and bolstering and blessing community is possible because of the gospel. The awesome announcement that it is finished. And so, what's the message of Galatians 6, 1 through 10? I am my brother's keeper. We are the ones who now, net of Genesis 4, we don't ask God the question. He has already answered it. And we get to be those people who live our lives for others kinds of people. So listen, let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer... As far as you know, Jesus was a nice guy, a good rabbi, a swell teacher some 2,000 years ago, and that's the end of the story. I just want you to know that the book we believe is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word says that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he is God, that he is man, that he fulfilled the demands of the law, that is perfection, and paid the wages of sin, that is death, so that we would never be saddled with either. And he offers that in exchange freely. And having received that, he also gives us his spirit. God could not possibly get closer to us in this age than indwelling us by his spirit. And those kinds of people have authentic community with one another. And if you're here this morning and you're still just trying to slug it out and maintain some semblance of social relationships, I just want you to know you will go to your grave frustrated and alone. So I invite you to believe. And if you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a very long time, but you have fallen into the pattern of the flesh where your whole sphere of influence is filled with you, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to boast in the cross. This is what Paul says. We boast. The word is kakema. He uses a very intentional word. The word has the idea of a military chant. Roman soldiers knew this. Philistines knew this. Israelite soldiers knew this. They would line up and they would yell to one another, our spears are strong enough. Our shields are strong enough. We have training. We will win. Ah! Paul says we are to boast in the cross. 
We preach a sermon to our own soul. The cross has happened. It is finished. God has withheld no good and perfect thing. I have all that I need. Why would I ever withhold anything from anybody else that God leads me to bless? I boast in the cross, and I tell myself, it is finished. It is sufficient. How will you use me, God? I step back. What are you doing, God? What are you doing? Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. Give me give me arms to embrace. If you're a believer, but you've sort of fallen out of that form, I want to encourage you. I want to invite you back into awareness. It is the most exhilarating thrill light of your entire existence. I am my brother's keeper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and therefore whose we are, and the privilege and the prerogative of keeping one another. Because you, Lord Jesus, our big brother, bore our burden. And so may we go and do likewise. No, not unto salvation, but simply to demonstrate your finished work. I pray, God, if there's anyone here that does not know you, you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. And for the rest of us, God, would you challenge us all over again to take inventory of our life. We would not simply default to, I'm busy, but I would default to, I am my brother's keeper, that we would intentionally create margin to be aware of the burdens of others. And in so doing, God, would you be honored, would you be glorified, and would you build this body of believers? We pray these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.